Welcome to a special mini-sode episode of the I Read Comic Books podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Paul Jaisley, joined by the great Kara Shamborski. Hi. And uh, we have a, uh, a topic today that's um, a somewhat sad topic, but I think it's an important one to discuss. We're going to look back at the year 2018 and talk about some of the comic book creators that sadly passed away this past year. And there were some big names this year, so we really want to take some time to uh, honor their legacies and talk about their, their role in the co- history of comic books. We have a list here of creators that we want to talk about, as well as the characters they created. Um, and I think, obviously, the big name on the list that we should probably start with, because we probably have a lot to talk about, is Stan Lee. Uh, you know, the the iconic Stan Lee, the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics from the 60s and 70s, um, and a pop culture icon all unto himself, passed away this year at uh, November 12th at the age of 95. Uh, where do we start with Stan Lee, Kara? Where do we start with Stan Lee? So basically, when I started doing research for this episode, my my research page about Stan Lee is just me trying to diagram my emotional response to him over time <laughs> mm-hmm. as right. I learned as I learned more about him. Yeah. Uh, when I first started getting into comic books in when when I was in high school, his was one of the first creator names that I became aware of. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of the first creator names that anyone getting into comics really becomes aware of. Because his influence and uh, self-promotion is just <laughs> intrinsic in that. And yeah. so I went through that phase where I was like, oh my God, it's Stan Lee and the joy of the cameos in the movies when they started coming out and feeling like I was like an insider because I knew who that was when the regular people in the theater didn't. Right. Yeah. And then a few years later when Marvel Comics The Untold Story came out, I read that and then I had my vehement Jack Kirby defense phase and my disillusionment about Stan Lee because I was like, how dare he not recognize (laughs) his co-creators and how dare he be so self-centered? And I had kind of like, my note says my disdain of sheeple fanboys. Like whenever (laughs) people like freaked out too much about like a Stan Lee cameo, I'd be like, can you not? <laughs> and then, then a little bit later, I think the point that I got to about now was the the acknowledgement of his achievements and how later in life he was more willing to share credit. And the important thing, which like seems so so obvious, but maybe not really, is that he was a human being. He wasn't this perfect unassailable creator god he was a human being he was mm-hmm. going to have flaws he was going to like he was he was himself yeah. and mm-hmm. i have i just i just have to accept that that means that maybe he wasn't perfect but he did help make a lot of stories that made a lot of people including me very happy yeah i mean that's that's about the same um emotional reaction there that i have uh, to stan you know i his his legacy is complicated. Um, that is the word. You know, that is the word for it. Um, because I, and this isn't a put down at all. I don't mean it as a, a knock against him because I do admire him for everything he did. But Stanley's greatest creation was Stanley himself. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the sort of grandfatherly figure that would pop up in the movies or you would see in cameos. Um, in interviews who was just so excited to talk about comics, just loved talking about comics. And like, of course, I went through my phase. Again, I read Marvel Comics Untold Story as well. And they have that whole thing where you realize 
he took credit for things that he didn't do, or he was unwilling to actually acknowledge things that he didn't contribute. Um, but the, the thing is, like, he was such a cheerleader for Marvel Comics and comic books in general that those books wouldn't have sold without his enthusiasm. You know what I mean? Like, that character of Stan Lee sold those books as much as Jack Kirby's art did in some sense. So, Oh, yeah, and he, he was the one who always had the dream of the comics being produced in Hollywood like basically from the beginning he was the guy who said you know what these would make great movies and the the money and the technology didn't really catch up to that until the 2000s like you could say late 90s and 80s with Batman but let's be real the superhero movie (laughs) thing didn't really pick up pick up until Iron Man exactly exactly and I think that's that really was Stan Lee's it seems like that was his goal in some sense. I mean, he leaves Marvel in the seventies to go to Hollywood and try to make that stuff happen. And I think it's amazing to see his legacy basically rooted in not even 10 years of working at Marvel. That's maybe selling him short because he did work in comics in the late thirties and forties. You know, his uncle owned timely comics, which became Marvel. So he was working the whole time and, you know, he saw the comic book market or the, the medium, the industry almost collapse in the late fifties and then he creates the Fantastic Four. I think he was like 39 years old when he creates the Fantastic Four. He had already had a career in comics before that. But his second act as that Stanley character that you know and love, and then his third act as this sort of, you know, the the face of Marvel Comics that shows up in the movies, I mean, I, that is all rooted in what he did with Jack Kirby and St- Steve Ditko in, at Marvel in the 60s. And it's pretty amazing to build a pop culture legacy, you know, out of that little time frame there. And, of course... He is famous for the Marvel method where Mm -hmm. he was basically like technically he was writing every single comic Marvel was making at the beginning, but he would like dash off a script and then give it to the artists and the artists would make the comic, which is why I think this becomes so complicated in terms of of ownership and credit because, okay, I in any sort of collaboration the origin of an idea is sometimes difficult to pinpoint. So it's like, did, did he create the characters because he wrote the script and then gave it to the artist? Did the artist create the character first and then he dashed off a script? So it's just this whole nebulous thing, which makes it so weird looking at things that he said over the decades, putting most of the credit on himself when it's, and I think this is a, a conversation that comic creators still have today. It's like, mm-hmm. well, who 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 owns this comic? Is it the artist? Is it the writer? Is it the publisher? Does the letter yeah. and the colorist get a piece of it because their work is important too? So, well, you know, it, again, it is. It's more complicated than in some sense because Stan, in addition to created this this character of Stan the Man Lee, you know, that sold the comics really. He also created this this entirely fictional idea of the Marvel bullpen, where him and the artists would be in the same room together, pitching ideas back and forth. You know, when he could write his Stan soapbox in the comics and talk about that, or you know, even the the splash pages, the first page of the comic, where he would have you know script by Stan the Man Lee, art by Jack the King Kirby. He actually did give the artists credit in that sense. He always knew that the names Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were going to sell comics too, but that didn't translate into you know the character creation. He still says that he created Spider Man just because he came up with the name. 
you know, there's a lot more that goes into Spider-Man than just the name, you know, and I don't think he acknowledged that creative aspect, but that idea of the Marvel bullpen and them being a team, like, I think that's really brand new to comics. That generated a lot of the excitement about Marvel at the time. Sure, it made it seem like you were in the in crowd, like you knew what was going on behind the scenes, and those editorial pages became peppered with inside jokes and references to make people feel like they were they were experiencing this fast-paced New York comic creation situation. Yeah, yeah and I, again, I, th- I think that is that was a brand new idea at the time to really let the fans know, like, hey, there are people making these comics. They don't just show up on the newsstand. And he was acknowledging the work that goes into them, just sometimes taking more credit than and sometimes uh, he deserved. But um, you can't overstate that his enthusiasm for comics in some sense, made them more accepted. You know, he would go tour uh, colleges around the country to talk a lecture about comics. So he helped get comics in the hands of college students at the time, you know, and then even just his excitement about stuff. When he was past his prime as a creator, he was still the guy who would always be excited when a new Marvel movie came out or be excited about a new comic book idea. And like that enthusiasm, I think, is, is as important as anything else he did. Um, he was the comics hype man. Exactly, exactly. And I, I like the idea that he became like the what's the mascot for Marvel Comics. You know, even until the 80s when he was no longer there working, you know, writing, the comics would still start the top of the page would say, you know, Stan Lee presents the X-Men. Stan Lee presents the Silver Surfer. Like he was the the guy that was Marvel Comics in a lot of people's eyes. And I think that translated to the movies. Even if people don't know that legacy, they still recognize him from all the cameos in the movies. Like, oh yeah, it's that, that guy who's always in all the movies. I think that's a cool <laughs> legacy for him to have. Like, I really like the idea that brand new people that don't know about his legacy still get excited about seeing him on the screen. Mm-hmm. I So at the, the comics club that I run at the school where I work, I was... Uh, telling the kids about Stanley after he died. Like one of the girls in my, in my club said, Miss Kara, are we going to talk about Stanley? I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, we are. So right there, my heart was already breaking. I'm like, Oh God, how do I explain the legacy of this, this guy to yeah. a bunch of third and fourth graders? So I gave them like the bare bones overview and we watched uh, like interview that he had done with the New York Times a few years ago that was very well done and we also watched a compilation of his appearances in Marvel films and okay. TV yeah. shows mm-hmm. and like seeing that all together just sort of made me realize the enormity of uh, his influence whether it was off like good or bad or in the gray area in between on <laughs> yeah, yeah on comics and pop culture as a whole and uh i i can't remember if i've mentioned this before but in his uh guardians of the galaxy 2 bonus scene with the watchers he's like mm-hmm. telling them stories and they start and they like turn and they start walking away from him and then he goes no wait stop i have so many more stories to tell and i just started crying oh, in the middle of club yeah. it was so bad <laughs> yeah 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 uh in some sense though i think the stories that had come about stan in the past few years were really heartbreaking so in some sense you know hopefully this was a relief you know, we heard the stories the past few years about him being taken advantage of financially, people taking money from him, um, 
there was uh, accusations of elder abuse by his like caretaker. I know he had a pretty strange relationship with his daughter. So it, the last few years of Stanley's life weren't very happy. It doesn't seem so. I I, I in take some comfort in the fact that at least he's not suffering anymore in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So. I, but, Sorry. I, I know. No, it's no, it's it's emotional. We're gonna we're gonna yeah. get a little emotional. But you you had mentioned Spider Man a few times, so I think we should mm-hmm. talk about Steve Ditko now. Yes, yes. Um, so Steve Ditko um, famously co created Spider Man and Doctor Strange. Worked as part of that Marvel bullpen in the '60s. Was a, an integral part of it. Um, passed away this year at um, age of ninety on June 29th. Uh, this was kind of a tough one for me because I, like I said, I think Steve Ditko is a guy that never got the credit he deserved. He was part of that Marvel bullpen, but he was press shy. He didn't want to do interviews, which is one of the reasons Stan Lee was able to become the face of Marvel Comics, is that he was the guy who would talk to the press and do interviews where, you know, the artists were actually too busy to do that sort of stuff. So Steve Ditko is the guy that creates the Spider-Man costume. He comes with the idea of Peter Parker being a teenager, being a nerdy teenager at that. He creates the dynamic look of the book and the character. Everything you know about Spider-Man that's not the name, you can trace right back to Steve Ditko, and that's a huge legacy. You know, Spider-Man is one of the most important characters in the past century, and this guy kind of created by himself in some regards and never really got credit for that. But also, in a sense, I don't think he really cared about that that much. You know, he just wanted to make comics. At least the way that's kind of I justify it in that regard. He was so I was I was reading about how his uh, creative style evolved, and about how he had worked on a lot of horror comics before doing Spider Man. So yeah. he he brought this this intensity of like internal psychological torment to Spider Man's constant self-reflection on is he good enough as a hero is he good enough as a person like is he is he responsible enough to bear the weight of these powers that he has Mm -hmm. and i thought that was was very very interesting that i hadn't really thought of before but that is also a huge part of spider-man as a character absolutely yeah just like him him constantly just like a constant self-reflection that you didn't see in a lot of other heroes at the time. That was really groundbreaking. Yeah. And I think um, I have always thought that the the success of Marvel comics in the sixties is a lot of it's due to the dynamic difference between Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby. Cause I, mean, I kind of put the three of them together, Stan, Steve and Jack are responsible for a lot of what Marvel was at the time. Obviously there's other people working there like Dick Ayers, Marie Severin, who we'll talk about the whole team, but the creative, you know, impetus for all that stuff, I think, is those three guys and their Kirby style and Ditko style could not be more different, you know, visually. And I think that's what made Marvel Comics so interesting. There wasn't a house style. You read early issues of Spider-Man or the Doctor Strange stories, they look very different than Fantastic Four and Thor in the Avengers. And I think that made it easier for a broader range of readers to go to Marvel and see these different type of this art style. Yeah, and um, when it comes to Doctor Strange, I had, I had that was one of the most memorable parts of the Marvel Comics: The Untold Story book for me was the discussion of Doctor Strange as being that, like, kind of the right character at the right time to get 
like hippies and college kids <laughs> into comics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. but like you're saying, that style was just so, so different. Like Kirby would not have had the same effect on a Doctor Strange type character. Exactly. And Ditko made this just surreal landscape for this Sorcerer Supreme to hang out in and fight in. And it really connected with a lot of people. Yeah, it definitely, I think that character, I mean, Spider-Man has become a pop culture icon, but if you go back and read those early stories, it's, as we were saying, very different from comics at the time. And Doctor Strange is even stranger. I mean, no pun intended. <laughs> but what, what's also interesting about Steve Ditko is like he was a part of that Marvel bullpen. It wasn't like he was doing these weird characters on his own. You know, he drew the first few issues of The Incredible Hulk, you know, so that's a character I always associate with with Jack Kirby, that big dynamic powerful character but you know Ditko did a bunch of uh, Incredible Hulk stories he also designed Iron Man's red and yellow suit because you know Kirby created the, that bulky gray suit but the one we associate with Iron Man like that's Steve Ditko that's a Steve Ditko design you know so like I think he's enmeshed in that creative process again the problem is with the Marvel method you can't really tease out all the details of who did what when you know right so after he had a fallout with Stan Lee, uh, Steve Ditko left Marvel and did work for other publishers, which was uh, kind of the more, um, not like resonant ones for me, but the ones that I know because I read mostly DC Comics for the first part of mm-hmm. uh, my my comic reading experience. And I had no idea that Steve Ditko had created... Uh, the question and Blue Beetle and Captain Adam over at Charlton, which were later acquired by DC. He did Hawk and Dove and the Creeper for DC. Mm-hmm. Um, so just this like roster of characters that I adore, and I'm like, oh, they're all from the <laughs> same dude. And yeah, yeah, that tra- <laughs> the Charlton stuff is really interesting because you know those characters. I again, as a person growing up reading DC comics, I always associate them with DC, but. You know, he creates them for Charlton Comics, and then those characters get bought by DC. And then those are the characters that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons wanted to use for Watchmen. They couldn't use them, so instead they created analogs. So the question becomes uh, Rorschach. Captain Adam becomes Dr. Manhattan. So you wouldn't really have Watchmen, whatever your feelings on the book are, you wouldn't have that landmark book without Steve Ditko's characters. I mean, that's a pretty important legacy in its in, in its own right there. So... I mean, there's lots to unpack there. And I, 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 again, the Creeper, Hawk and Dove, those aren't like super well-known DC characters, but I think they're characters with the big sort of, uh, maybe not big, but committed fan bases. I know Hawk and Dove are now showing up on this TV shows now. So that's, you know, those are characters I think haven't maybe gotten, not gotten their due, but maybe will now. I'm very committed to Hawk and Dove. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I have Good. I have been very committed to Hawk and Dove since they showed up on the Justice League animated show. And I okay, was like, sure. what? your brothers who fight all the time and then (laughs) but um it it is interesting again doing research for this because uh most of the articles that i read about steve ditko were emphasizing that um with his creations like the question like hawk and dove even the creeper and a character called mr a that he made for uh another publisher entirely for Wits End Comics. It's all tying back to his uh, intense devotion to Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And so some of these articles were hinting like maybe he had a fallout at Marvel because he wanted to put more of his philosophy into the comics and Stan was like, but that won't sell. <laughs> so it's just, right. yeah. also we, we won't know what happened, but it is just uh, interesting to see that his, um, his worldview was so... Uh, like he was able, he translated that into his comic creations in different ways. Yeah, that that is one of the most interesting aspects of his legacy is that he kind of leaves mainstream comics in the '80s and kind of commits his time to making these sort of self-published or small press black and white comics that are basically about objectivism, the the philosophy. I mean, I'd, Ayn Rand's known for you know libertarianism these days, but I think he was more interested in her philosophical views than her political views in, in some regard. But yeah, I mean, it's a weird legacy for him to have because to pay the bills, he takes on this work for hire stuff, but it's doing like Rom Space Night. You know, he did the artwork for a Transformers coloring book. And it's like, you're the guy who created Spider-Man and this is what you're doing to pay the bills. <laughs> but I think he was so committed to being a self-reliant artist or maybe just doing what he wanted to do and now working for a big company that he ends up being a hermit. You know, the one of the sad things is that he had very few friends that he spoke to on a regular basis. And there were, I remember, you know, as years would go by, there'd always be rumors that like maybe he did go ahead, passed away before, but no one knew. So I think in this regard, it took a while for people to realize that he was gone because he didn't talk to anybody. He was just kind of a hermit or recluse, but you know, I, 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 I take comfort in the fact that I think he he was happy making comics on his own, and that's what he was able to do for for decades. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised to see that he came back to Marvel in the early '90s to make Squirrel Girl. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Who now is like one of the most popular characters that they have, and I know that she started out a, a little bit differently from her current popular interpretation but it's just (laughs) like you said he just kind of kept going whether that was his own work that he made mostly for himself or doing some work for higher stuff to pay the bills or get out some other creative energy Mm -hmm. and he his legacy also i think extends beyond just creative where he becomes a figure that later creators can look to and say i don't want this to happen to me or like he becomes a figure figurehead for the movement to get creator rights more recognized is what I'm trying to say, you know, that's this idea that they saw what happened to Jack and Steve and they said, you know, we need to have, make sure that people's creations are protected. He becomes a figure that, you know, in the nineties, the guys that create image comics can look to and say, yes, I mean, Stan, uh, Steve Ditko is kind of our, our uh, forefather in that regard because he went out and did his own thing and made his own comics, you know, create our own stuff. So he becomes a figure for the creator own movement is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So something real quick before we move on, something that uh, really got me was in his New York Times obituary. And they point out in that article that Steve Ditko nearly died from tuberculosis in 1954. Oh, so we came real close to never having (laughs) Spider-Man. Yeah. And all of the, the other contributions he made. And that's, it was just like a moment where I was like, wow, like he, we, we got an extra like 70 years out of him. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, and I think that that speaks to why I wanted to do this episode and talk about this stuff is that it's easy to think about these characters just existing. Like Spider-Man has been around as long as I 
as long as I have, longer than I have, you know, but he's always been there. It's always been a part of pop culture. But there was a time before 1963 when Spider-Man didn't exist. And I think it's important to recognize the people that make these contributions and make these creations because they they fundamentally change pop culture and change the world in some sense. So um, there was another uh, person who was an integral part of the Marvel House of Ideas, the bullpen there in the Silver Age in the 60s, who also passed away this year, uh, Marie Severin passed away on August 29th at age 89. And she was, again, a a person that maybe didn't get the recognition she deserved at the time, but was very important to Marvel because she was the colorist for Marvel from 59 until 72. So all the stuff we've been talking about, she probably colored it and did covers for it. I found a a quote from her that I really liked about the, the job of being a colorist and the, the, the role of coloring and she said it's like music in the background that is very nice yeah i never thought of it that way yeah so like she was talking about how she would change the colors to fit the mood and the action and you know if she's doing her job you don't really notice it but it's one of those things where it's like if you know, someone had just died and all of a sudden everything was like very cheerful, like pastels or something, you'd be like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, especially back then where like coloring is probably a lot more labor intensive than it is now. I mean, it's all done by hand and color blocking and stuff. So a lot of thought went into that, especially thinking about how it's going to be reproduced on that cheap newsprint. So I think, you know, coloring is something that's become more recognized in terms of the creative process. But as a woman working in comics in the 60s, I don't think she probably got the recognition for that stuff. Um, one thing I did read is that she also worked for EC Comics in the 50s, which is the publisher that did all the really gruesome you know, horror and crime comics. Um, and apparently she was a pretty devout Catholic. So if there was ever a panel that was particularly uh, objectionable, she would color it in all really dark blue. So it kind of obscure the details a little bit. So if you ever saw a panel in an EC comic that was sort of monochrome, like black ink on like a really a sort of dark blue background, so you couldn't see it too well, that's probably Marie sort of like censoring the comic book a little bit for the kids reading it, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> and then I I learned that she designed Spider Woman's costume. That was basically her costume up until a few years ago, that orange and yellow and everything's like super skin tight. And um, so like she she seems to have just been like a jack of all trades character over at Marvel. I mean, aside from her coloring work, she did pencils, she did inks. She kind of had her her hands all over everything. But like you said, never really got that same recognition. And I think some of that is kind of to do with the fact that it was like a super boys club yeah yeah i think her co-workers probably you know recognize her contributions you know some of the things i did read mentioned that she was she did a lot of covers for marvel and she had a really dynamic cover style that really fit the aesthetic of the of marvel at the time and jack kirby even would ha- basically hand hand picked her to do covers that he didn't have time for because he liked her style so much so i think like the day-to-day you know relationship between her and the other bullpen was probably fine but there are very few women working in comics at the at that time so you know there wasn't that recognition um back then the only other woman i can think of that's probably working at the same time was uh ramona Freyden, you know so that's it's, it's, it's not many people there at the time but um i like the idea that 
she is a part of that bullpen. And we kind of talked about the idea of the Marvel bullpen being maybe entirely fictional. They probably didn't all work shoulder to shoulder in the same office at the same time. But I think I remember reading in Marvel Comics Untold Story, like everyone in the at the Marvel at the time really liked Marie and recognized her contributions, at least in that regard. Uh, it, a lot of the the articles that I read leading up to this were mentioning that she was a, a very funny artist and a very funny writer, and she would draw caricatures of everyone who worked at Marvel. And it was said that you didn't really work at Marvel until Marie had done a caricature of you and pinned it up <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, I, yeah, uh, I, I do still cherish that idea of, you know, Marvel in the in the 60s being a sort of, you know, a, a family in that sense. You know, I like that idea. So it's um, it's sad to see all three of them sort of go in the same year. I mean, they're, you know, getting older, obviously. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think nowadays, thanks to the work of Marie and Steve and the work that came after them to recognize artists' contributions, we have things like Create Your Own Comics, we have the Hero Initiative. So there is more of an impetus to recognize their contributions, you know, even outside the industry itself. I mean, they did get recognized in major newspapers, you know, for their their life's work after they passed, which is something is I, I still find kind of surprising. I still think of comics as a very insular, sort of a secretive club. So the fact that they're getting this recognition is is, is heartwarming. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we should also mention that the same day that Marie Severin passed, we also lost Gary Friedrich, who worked for Marvel roughly around the same time. I always associated with him with later work, but he was actually working there in the 60s as well, but doing genre comics, doing westerns instead of the superhero stuff. And a lot of war comics. His longest run was on Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. And uh, I think he's probably best known to a lot of comic book fans for creating uh, Ghost Rider, kind of his legacy character there at Marvel, which I I didn't realize that uh, Ghost Rider he actually created as a Western character. And then I guess I always associate the Ghost Rider in the 70s, so probably in the early 70s, he kind of retooled him to be the sort of, you know, motorcycle riding, flaming skull <laughs> Ghost Rider that we all know <laughs> of today. <laughs> But that that also, you know, is a character and a creator that, you know, fought for creator-owned comics and recognition to start his career. And and that carried on. He's, uh, at, at this point, the, re- the reason why he got some re- press in recent years was because when the Ghost Rider movies were coming out, he basically sued Marvel and all the film companies involved saying... I I own a piece of this pie, so where are my royalty checks? And it, the judge ruled against him because he had done the work as work for hire, and Marvel actually countersued him for seventeen thousand dollars, and and so it it ended in a settlement where they both say everything's cool. But I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, comics are. Um... They're an interesting industry. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Ruthless. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Gary Friedrich is, is a creator that I personally don't have much of a connection with. I never really read much of his ghostwriter stuff, but I, I really admire that that he did, you know, willing to sort of speak up and say, no, like creators deserve uh, recognition, uh, especially financial recognition for these successful characters that make money for these companies. So yeah. Um, 
yeah, I, I really admire his his role in that regard. Um, another artist that passed away this year that I have more of a personal connection to is Norm Brayfogle, uh, who worked for DC in the 90s. He passed away this year on September 24th at age 58. Um, he suffered some pretty serious health um, setbacks later in his life. But uh, Norm Brayfogle he he is the Batman artist for people of a certain generation. You know, when I started reading Batman in the early nineties, it, it was Norm Brayfogle. He worked on detective, he worked on Batman, he worked on um, legend of the dark Knight. basically from 90, from 87 to 93, any kind of Batman comic you picked up, there's a good chance he drew it. And you could tell cause he had such a unique style. So when I, when I think of Batman spe- specifically of that era, I think of Norm Brayfogle's art. And what's great is that, his ability to change styles fit that character so well. He could do a Batman fight sequence where it is the traditional, you know, muscular Batman punching a guy, but then there would be a panel a couple pages later where it would be a stylistic just silhouette of Batman. And it wouldn't it wouldn't be realistic, but it'd fit the mood of the comic. I always associated it with you would see like just the shape of Batman's out outline like the the ears the cowl just the eyes and just be a shadow with eyes and it's like that's what the criminal sees when he sees batman you know what i mean it's so unrealistic and abstract but it fit the story so well and i liked his ability to do that i that's what's always stuck with me with his stuff and take that gravity defying cape for a ride <laughs> <laughs> oh please nobody drew capes better than norm bray fogel man um, <laughs> uh, yeah th- yeah no no this uh the style that he did like you said was just so instantly recognizable uh in college when i was working at my local comic shop going through all of their their back issues to kind of sort everything that had been accumulated over the years i i like kind of reached a point where i could more or less tell what uh decade something was from by its art and his his Batman art was so identifiable that I was instantly just like, okay, early '90s Batman, you go over here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, um, he really did define the look of the character for a long time, um, and made some contributions. He worked with Alan Grant, the writer on Detective Comics, and uh, they introduced characters like the Ventriloquist, um, Jeremiah Arkham. They also he was also the first guy to draw Tim Drake as Robin, so that's kind of important because that was a pretty formative experience for me, being a young man reading. Batman comics, getting a new Robin was pretty darn exciting. So I always have a respect for him in that regard. And let's be real, Timmy is the best Robin ever. Of course. <laughs> I wouldn't disagree with that. So <laughs> um, He also did some really interesting stuff, too. He did the first uh, art for the first Elseworlds comic that DC published, Batman Holy Terror, which is kind of an interesting book. And then he also experimented with different styles. He did the Batman Birth of the, Birth of the Demon, which is the uh, origin story for Ra's al Ghul. And that's a book that's all entirely painted. It's not pencils and inks. It's all painted and it looks awesome. So I like the fact that he experimented with different medium while making comics. And just one of those guys that I think was kind of a journeyman guy, like was happy drawing comics and he happened to be really good at it. So I think for a lot of people, he was, you know, like I said, the Batman artist. So unfortunately he, like I mentioned, he did have some pretty serious health um, issues later in his life. He wasn't able to draw for the last few years uh, due to some paralysis, but um again, that highlights the need for financial compensation for creators because he relied on uh, groups like the Hero Initiative to help pay his medical bills and stuff and the, and the, the kindness of fans rather than the uh, corporation that owned his characters. 
Sorry, I became very grumpy about that and like lost okay, words there. I was just like, oh, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately, I think everyone we're talking about today, except for Stanley, is going to be have that same <laughs> same reaction. Um, yeah, it's like all these all these creators made such awesome things. I mean, even if you're not a comics fan, if you've ever if you're not someone who draws every day and you like try to draw something it's easy to get frustrated because that shit is hard so just thinking of like all these creators that we're talking about like churning out writing churning out art day after day year after year for like not a lot of money not a lot of recognition it's like man you really gotta gotta love what you're doing and it's yeah yeah it's just it's Ooh, why isn't the system better? <laughs> I know it's something I'm so I've mad now. <laughs> I think that's something that I've seen pop up in the past month or so on, you know, social media. People talking about the idea that there really should have been, and there still should be, a uh, a union for comic book creators, artists, and writers, where it is people can live comfortably while doing what they love. And I think that's an idea that was obviously floated back in the 50s and 60s. Let's unionize. And of course, it's shot down. And it's something that keeps coming up every every couple years or so. And I I think the, the anger or frustration that people feel about reading about this stuff, I think can only lead to maybe positive results in the end where maybe hopefully we do get a unionized, you know, comic book industry. Because that's what I hope. Um, In the meantime, yeah. you can donate to the Hero <laughs> Initiative. <laughs> yeah, there are organizations doing the right thing in, in that regard. So um, there's another um, artist who passed away this year. I don't know that much about their work, but Russ Heath passed away this year on August 23rd at the age of 91. He was I always associate, associate him with more Golden Age era stuff um, or early Silver Age doing genre comics. The one thing I do know about him is that he did... Um, I think it's the Aces High illustration that um, uh, Roy Lichtenstein ripped off and made millions of dollars on a painting that he sold. But he ripped off Russ Heath's artwork for it, um, which is getting screwed over in an entirely different way. Not helping my mood, Paul. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) But Russ Heath, I think a few years ago, he did do a little story for the Hero Initiative that talked about that, that he knew that Roy Lichtenstein, the famous... um, pop artist from the 60s who would take comic book panels and then copy them onto the canvas and sell them for millions of dollars. He, Russ Heath basically said he didn't really want anything from Lichtenstein financially. He just wanted recognition for his work, you know, and then maybe someday he would like Lichtenstein to buy him a drink, you know, as a way of thanking him. And then he writes about the Hero Initiative, help paying his medical bills and help paying his rent. He was able to buy a really nice bottle of wine. And he could kind of took that as like, all right, this is finally me getting my drink from Roy Lichtenstein and my recognition. So, you know, again, one of those one of those guys who kind of worked in comics as a sort of journeyman artist, I think, and um, whose legacy is the the need for creator protection, creator rights in that regard. Uh, so yeah, I'm sorry this became sort of a dark episode. I hopefully I didn't mean it I, to uh, go, I, I go, go that way. I don't know what you think was going to happen with this. Where we spend the whole time talking about people who have unfortunately died because that is that is the the end point of everyone's life. But it's 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 always sad to talk about, and it's just also frustrating that you look at all this and think, well, what might have been different or what might have been better. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, we can maybe sort of turn it into a positive note here is that all these people made creations and did work that brought people a lot of joy. The other uh, other day, I had my a friend of mine who has uh, t- uh, two-year-old twins. Uh, they came over and I got them some books. I got them like a book about Superman. I got them a book about Spider-Man. And I sort of thought like Spider-Man is still a thing that kids really like. You know what I mean? There's always going to be Spider-Man stories. There's always going to be stories that resonate with people and character resonate with people that were created by by someone who just had an idea so the fact that the, those characters are still around that's an important legacy for someone to leave so you know the the, the hard work that stan and marie and russ and norm and stan did that's still going to outlive all of us and i think that's something that that's really really impressive and really amazing that we should celebrate paul now i'm gonna cry <laughs> I'm just oh. <laughs> no I'm just picturing yeah. like you said like kids still love Spider-Man and I'm just picturing like the kids on the the playground at school who like every recess go around doing thwit, 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 with their little spidey hands like all through the playground like oh god okay I'm done yeah. we're, we're done <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I need yeah, a minute so, over here now <laughs> <laughs> so I guess maybe that's that's in some sense why I wanted to talk about this and talk about this with you is that I think it's easy to overlook the creative process since we don't see it. You know what I mean? It happens in private. It happens before the books reach the stands. So to step back and, you know, unfortunately it often takes place after people have, have, have passed away, but to step back and recognize people's contributions and the hard work they did. I, I, I like to do that. And I think it's important as a comic book fan, especially an industry that is so insular and is, you know, sometimes look down upon to really recognize that these people's legacies extend far beyond the pages of the comic book, you know, to pop culture as a whole. So I'm glad we got the chance at least to talk about them today a little bit. Me too. This is a good chat. I'm going to go cry now. (laughs) Okay. Well, I want to say to listeners out there who want to learn more about these characters, these creators, I'm glad that we brought up Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe. I cannot recommend that book highly enough. So if you want to learn more about the Marvel bullpen and Steve, Marie, and Stan's relationship with each other, check that book out. It's a very good read. And like we mentioned earlier, feel free to donate to the Hero Initiative or other, see the CBLDF, any of these organizations that help support creators, especially freelance and work for hire creators who don't have the uh, support system and safety nets that... Uh, many people do with full-time employment. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you have any other thoughts uh, about these creators that you want to share with us, you know where to find us at the I Read Comic Books uh, Twitter, our email, all that stuff. I'm sure there'll be that at the end of the show someone will add in, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, Kara, uh, I'm glad we had this conversation today. It's nice talking about this stuff with you. And I, I think I'm going to go um, dig up some of my comics. Oh, before we leave for good, I was going to ask, do you have any favorite Stanley comics, particular stories or issues? Because I know I do. I can't believe I forgot about this. Oh, well, y- you start. <laughs> okay. Okay. I do want to, I was thinking about this, like what book would I pick for Stan and Steve? Um, for Stanley, I, I have to pick um, the Fantastic Four. Um, hold on. I can't, I'm so embarrassed. I have to look up what issue number look this it is. Up. Look it up, Paul. <laughs> okay. So uh, obviously Fantastic Four, I think that is uh, Stanley's. I when I think of Marvel and Stanley, I really think of Fantastic Four. Him and Kirby, I think, were an amazing team. And my pick is Fantastic Four number fifty-one. This man, 
this monster. It's a classic story. It's the issue right after the Galactus saga, when you first introduced Galactus and Silver Surfer, which is a very Jack Kirby type of story. Uh, this Man, This Monster is the story where the thing gets turned back into Ben Grimm for a day. Like, Mr. Fantastic figures out a way to do that. But what Mr. Fantastic doesn't know is that someone had used a device to steal uh, the thing's identity. So there was actually someone else inhabiting the thing's body. So when he turns into Ben Grimm, it's Ben Grimm physically, but it's someone else's brain in Ben Grimm's body. And it's this great story about identity and what it means to be a person and your the difference between mind and body and uh, family because immediately Mr. Fantastic and um, uh, Sue Storm realize like, oh wait, this isn't Ben Grimm. This is someone else because he's not acting like himself. So that is, I've always associated with the working dynamic between Stan and Jack, where they were the most in sync in that story. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the first few issues of the Avengers from the early '60s when Captain America like gets chipped out of that iceberg and the team forms <laughs> and it's like the first like dynamic squabbling superhero team. Yeah. With all those big marquee heroes working together or not working together. And (laughs) I I actually started reading those because uh, when the Avengers film came out in 2012, I was reading so much fan fiction, which is how (laughs) I discovered the Wasp and wanted to know more about her. I got this um, Avengers compilation of the early titles because I was like, wait a minute, why isn't the wasp in these movies? If she is quote unquote, Mm. the girl from this original team lineup. (laughs) And I just really enjoyed her, her character, especially in those early issues, just basically being like, like, like Stanley gave her a real attitude with her dialogue. And she's very just like, Oh my God, do I have to do everything myself? And why are humans so useless? But also you're cute. So this is fine. <laughs> and it was like, you know, even though she was being like kind of a, a mishmash of feminine stereotypes at the time, I kind of appreciated that she wasn't just the girl. Like she had an attitude and she was allowed to have some sexuality she was just like just kept like talking about how cute the boys were but also like very not so subtly mentioning how she was like doing their jobs better than they were (laughs) and i was just kind (laughs) of like yes okay okay which was which was nice to revisit because prior to that all i really knew about the wasp was from all the dramatic listicles talking about that time that Ant-Man was, they were in like a domestic abuse situation. So that was like all I really knew about her up to that point. So it was nice to go back and be like, oh, at the beginning, she was just like a wisecracking tough chick who was like messing around with the boys all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Thanks, I do like the yeah, I do like the dynamic that stuff. I think it's also then a fantastic for the familial sort of, you know, uh, group of superheroes, that dynamic between all of them. I always associate that with Stan Lee. And then um, for Steve, I got to go with uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 33. It's the best Spider-Man story. It's the best Marvel comic ever published. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's the final issue of a story where Spider-Man is fighting Dr. Octopus. Um, Aunt May is sick. And the op- issue opens with Spider-Man in Doc Octopus's lair. Um, there's a serum that will save Aunt May's life on the across the room, but Spider-Man's trapped under a giant piece of equipment, like a giant piece of machinery, and the room is leaking because it's underwater. It's you know it's a tunnel under the the river there in New York. So 
the room's slowly building up, filling up with water, and Spider-Man's trying to lift this heavy thing up, and he can't do it, and you get three pages of Spider-Man trying to pick this thing up, but it's all done with Steve Ditko just drawing Spider-Man, you know, and Spider-Man doesn't have, you can't see his face, it's just his mask, and it's just the the body language, the way he holds his head in his hands, the way he, like, uses his fists and his hands to tell the story, and it's this, you see Spider-Man go from like, okay, I got to pick this thing up. Oh, it's too heavy. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to lose my Aunt May. I've got to, I'm, I'm going to give up. Oh, I can't give up. And then finally he picks the thing up. And it's, Stan Lee's dialogue is almost superfluous. You'd actually don't need it to get exactly what Spider-Man's feeling in that three-page sequence. It's amazing to see someone do that, especially the character, like I said, with a mask and, you know, and he's, you only see his head in his hands because the rest of his body's under this giant machine. It's stunning cartooning. And I've always loved it. I'll have to add that to my list because that seems to be everyone's top pick for that <laughs> that creative team. Yeah, it's, it's a basically a perfect comic. I, I love it so much. So, um, yeah. So, okay. If you have a favorite Stanley issue or a favorite Steve Ditko issue or any of the creators we talked about, again, let us know on social media. You know where to find us. You listen to the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah Kira again thanks for doing this with me I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this before the end of the year thanks Paul yeah me too thanks for listening to the I Read Comic Books podcast don't forget we have a survey running right now for all you listeners you can enter to win $15 at Comixology just let us know what you think of the show thanks to Paul and Kara for recording this episode you can follow them on Twitter at Ohipoly and at Kara S. Zam. <laughs> you can also follow the show at IRCB Podcast, where we post all of our episodes and all sorts of other fun things. Check out our website, ircbpodcast.com, for our pronunciation guide and some merch. Please rate, make sure to rate and subscribe. Email the show at ircb at destroythesibe.org. And make sure to subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash ircbpodcast to get access to early episodes, articles, and all sorts of fun stuff. Infinity Shred does all the music for the show. They are the best band in the universe. Xander is a pure golden wizard from the skies above. He also edits the show. Thank you to the listeners. Thank you again to Paul and Kara. And until next year, we will check you later. <laughs>